Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 14th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, I decided to take a short break from the presentation on the Wisdom of Solomon and present something I had a knife had an idea for, which I've titled, This is Not White Supremacy, It is God's Supremacy. Our Christian identity profession is a belief in the supremacy of God and the truth of his word, as we've actually seen a great deal of it already unfold in history, just as he said it would. I hope you all have some time. Every once in a while, I am motivated to write a presentation introducing and explaining our Christian identity beliefs, and this is it for 2020. But it is not <laughs> it is not going to be brief. This presentation includes a review, and this is how it started with this and with a conversation with TruthFids the other day. This presentation includes a review of an essay by Clifton Emmeheiser titled, When Will All of Israel Be Awakened to Their Identity? And perhaps many Christian identity adherents will be somewhat disappointed with the answer, but we must be patient. The time is certainly coming. But you won't hear that until the last, perhaps, 15 minutes of this presentation. <laughs> 4,000 years ago, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of our Bible, the God of the Christian Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, had called the biblical patriarch Abraham out of the wider Adamic world. There were already many established white Adamic nations, the entirety of which had wandered off into paganism and had begun to accept or develop many practices which are, for the most part, still considered abominations, or at least until recently, they've been considered as objectionable by white society. Most of them are unto this very day. But because Abraham believed God, as we read in Genesis chapter 17, God walked with him. God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of thee. And kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee. And thy seed after thee in their generations. For an everlasting covenant. To be a God unto thee. And to thy seed after thee. Similar promises were given to Abraham, which were all without condition and were ultimately inherited by the patriarch Jacob, 
whose name was then changed to Israel. After 430 years, nearly 200 of those years having been spent in the captivity of Egypt, the children of Israel had grown into 12 tribes of as many as 2 million people. And we explained how that could happen in part four of our commentary on Paul's epistle to the Galatians, where we have the evidence. And I can't get it all into this two-hour podcast, but the links will be in the notes. Upon being delivered from that captivity, many groups of these Israelites escaped by sea to various places in southern Europe and Anatolia. Anatolia is the land of the east or the land of the rising of the sun from the Greek perspective. That's why they called it Anatolia, and it's equivalent to modern-day Turkey. For documentation on that statement, Israelites escaping by sea to various places in southern Europe and Anatolia, we have that documentation in part four of our commentary on the book of Amos, which we also had first presented a lot of the things that we will see here this evening in greater depth, of course. The greater number of the Israelites leaving Egypt followed Moses in the Exodus. So the remnant of the 12 tribes which survived with Moses in the Exodus were gathered near Mount Sinai in what we now call Arabia. And there, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had led them out of Egypt, made another covenant with them, giving them the laws which they were to live by if they were to remain in his favor. And they agreed to keep those laws. Now, this covenant was conditional because the covenant would be forever if the children of Israel kept the laws. When they failed for 700 years to keep the laws, This covenant was announced as having been broken, but that does not mean that the promises to Abraham were broken. God cannot break his promises, and those promises were unconditional. So we can't confuse this Levitical covenant with the promises to Abraham. When we get to the New Testament, The apostles do not inform us that the New Testament is founded upon the Levitical covenant. It was not. The apostles informed us that the New Testament was founded upon the promises, the unconditional promises which God had made with Abraham. Therefore, when this process began, As it is described in Exodus chapter 19, this covenant and Israel's promise to keep these laws, Yahweh had said unto them, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that word holy in Greek, hagios, as well as its equivalent in Hebrew, 
refers to something which is separated and dedicated to the purposes of a god. When you lay something on the altar, it becomes holy, separated, and dedicated to God. When Isaac was laid on the altar by his father Abraham, he became holy. He became separated from the rest of the world and dedicated to the purposes of God. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Later, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, that pronouncement was elaborated upon. In verse 1, ye are the children of Yahweh your God. And then in verse 2, after several um, instructions related to what or how Yahweh wanted them to conduct themselves because they are the children of God, he says, For thou art a holy people unto Yahweh thy God, and Yahweh has chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. The Levitical priesthood and the order of the kingdom of God formed from these tribes persisted and often even prospered under this law in spite of their many sins. From approximately 1450 B.C. to approximately 741 B.C., when Yahweh their God had decided that their sins were too grievous and that for their punishment and correction, they would be taken into captivity once again by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. The Assyrian captivities and deportations of Israel persisted until 676 B.C., by which time nearly all the tribes of the northern kingdom and most of, but not all, of Judah and Benjamin were either slaughtered in battle, escaped by sea, or were carried away prisoners into Assyria. That process lasted from 741 B.C. to approximately 586 B.C., when Jerusalem and the first temple were completely destroyed and the remnant at Jerusalem taken away by the Babylonians. Sometime later, under the rule of the Persians, approximately 42,000 people of Judah, Benjamin and Levi, returned from Babylonian captivity to establish Jerusalem anew under Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and Ezra, from 520 to about 458 B.C., and they built a new temple and grew into a great nation over the following 300 years, paving the way for the coming of the Messiah, which was the entire purpose of that kingdom as it is described in Daniel chapter 9. That purpose had no other that I'm sorry, that kingdom had no other true purpose but to establish the venue under which the Messiah would appear. But around 130 BC, that nation also began to become corrupted to the point where Edomites were ruling over it. And when the Messiah came, the people were divided and the greater number of the people and rulers of Judea had despised him.
However, these Judeans, as they came to be called by Greeks and Romans, were only a small portion of the 12 tribes which were carried into captivity. While not all of the events of the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of Israel and Judah are recorded in detail, there are archaeological records of some of them which survived in Assyrian, Persian, and Babylonian inscriptions. When Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, took all of the fenced cities of Judah, as described in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 2 Chronicles chapter 32, his own inscriptions state that he carried over 200,000 people into captivity. That's people of Judah and Benjamin going into Assyrian captivity, not Babylonian. When his predecessor, Sargon II, had besieged and destroyed Samaria 20 years before the failed siege of Jerusalem, his own records state that he carried off 27,000 of the people of that city into captivity. And we have these records cited in detail in our commentary on Amos. But these were only two of many Assyrian campaigns into Israel and Judah from which Israelite captives were gathered and taken into captivity in the north to the regions around the Black and Caspian Seas. For example, in 2 Kings chapter 15, we read of an Assyrian king who was a predecessor of Sargon II. And it says, In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and took Ejan, and Abel-Beth-Makkah, and Janua, and Kadesh, and Hazor, and Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and carried them captive to Assyria. For this we know of no surviving inscriptions. We don't know the number of the captives taken. Evidently, it must have been a great number because this was a great area of the northern tribes of Israel, the territory of the northern tribes of Israel. By the time of Esar Hadan, in 676 BC, most of the surrounding 12 tribes of Israel were taken into captivity or had escaped by sea, and there is evidence of that elsewhere. All that remained were the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the inhabitants of Tyre along with some scattered pockets of survivors in diverse places. Later, the Babylonians would destroy the mainland portion of Tyre, as well as Jerusalem. The Israelites taken into Assyrian captivity, Israelites who departed from Palestine by sea, and had founded colonies abroad during the period of the judges and kings of Israel, as well as the Israelites who escaped Egypt by sea at the time of the Exodus, these eventually formed many of the historical nations of modern Europe. But the biblical texts show that these people who were dispersed abroad were pagans and never considered themselves to be Jews. The word Jew is a modern invention, a corruption of the Roman term Judean, 
And even where it appears in English scriptures, it never described any Israelite who was not of the tribe of Judah or of the later kingdom of Judea. In chapter 5 of his epistle to the Romans, Paul of Tarsus explains at length that the promises of God were assured to the seed of Abraham, and only to the seed of Abraham, and to all of the seed of Abraham, which had already, as Paul explained it, had already become many nations and which were scattered abroad. Elsewhere, Paul had told those Romans that they had once had the truth of God, but turned it into a lie, for which they were being punished as he had written to them, punished in ways that were not evident. Rome had slipped into homosexual decadence and lasciviousness. That was their punishment for having rejected God and turned his truth into a lie. It's our, it's our same punishment today as we see so many Americans taken off into sodomy and pedophilia and every other disgusting sexual act. It's their punishment for forsaking God. In the Old Testament, who had ever had the truth of God? But the children of Israel, <coughs> excuse me, who ever had the truth of God but the children of Israel? When God himself declared that he never revealed his truth to anyone but the children of Israel. In chapter 10 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul explained to them that their ancestors had been baptized along with Moses during the Exodus in the cloud and in the sea. We have historical records even in Scripture. In 1 Maccabees, I think it's 1 Maccabees chapter 12, chapter 13. I kind of forget, but it's right around there. And also in Flavius Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Judeans, that the Dorian Greeks, of which the Corinthians were a portion, were indeed of the seed of Abraham and kindred to the Israelites of Judea. They said that by their own pen, one of their kings, circa 160 BC. Later, in the same chapter of Paul, in the same chapter of Romans, I'm sorry, in the same chapter of 1 Corinthians, I'm losing my place, Paul had described the nations around them as Israel according to the flesh, he said, Behold, Israel according to the flesh. And then he asked, Are not they which are... I'm paraphrasing. Are not they which are partakers of the sacrifices worshiping devils? And warned them that he didn't want them to have company with devils. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? And then he said, the things which the nations or Gentiles in the King James Version, but the word means nations, that the things which the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God, where he said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, he refers to the Israel 
according to the flesh or Israel after the flesh in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18. So Paul described the nations around the Corinthians as Israel according to the flesh. That would include the Romans, that would include the Illyrians, that would include the Macedonians, that would include the Danning Greeks. It would not include the Athenians or the Ionians, Ionian Greeks, because they were Jephthites. They were not Israel. It would also include the Galatians. They all came from ancient Israel, one way or another. Identity Christians are not mad. We're not crazy. We can show plainly in the Bible, in history, and in archaeology countless proofs for our assertions. So, if we have gathered the historical information from Greek and Roman classical writings, along with archaeological information which has only become available over these last 200 years, so the churches could never understand this, and by that, if we can fully understand the words of the prophets and the apostles of God, we arrive at the conclusion, the conclusions which we generally term as Christian identity, the belief that the nations of Christendom, the word traditionally used to describe white Christian Europe, have descended primarily from the ancient children of Israel in fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, in fulfillment of the oracles of Yahweh God in the words of the prophets, and in fulfillment of the declarations of Jesus Christ and his apostles. You would think that white Christians would be overjoyed at hearing this information and that having an opportunity to see and learn the many truths for themselves. But instead, for this we are dismissed with a pejorative, as being white supremacists. If the Jews, who are not truly Israel, declare for themselves to be God's chosen people, and special above and apart from all other people, they are celebrated. But if we do it because we are white and Christian, we are hated for being racists. How is that not an example of blatant hypocrisy? Christians have at least as much reason to believe that they are the people of God as the Jews, in the manner by which denominational Christians interpret their own New Testament translations. Yet, when they reckon the Jews as being special, although Christ himself denied them that status, and when the apostles of Christ told the nations of Europe and Mesopotamia that it was they who were the children of God, they ignore those scriptures. The Jews have been lying since the time of Christ. And Christ himself told them that they were lying. He told them they were lying. Yet, supposed Christians today 
believed the Jews instead of Jesus. Even without the archaeology and the history, simply reading the New Testament, we can see these truths. Yet for that, we are labeled as white supremacists. The slander will not hide the truth. What we believe is not white supremacy. As we also know, and this is important to understand, we also know that Abraham was called out of that ancient pagan world to receive the promises of God, while at the same time, many great white nations of his time, Egypt, Cush, Hatti, Assyria, Persia, Media, Syria, Ionia, Lydia, and others were being swept aside. I should have thrown in Phrygia and Thrace, were being swept aside for the benefit of the children of Israel. For example, we read in Isaiah chapter 43, which was not written until after most of the children of Israel were taken into Assyrian captivity, from which they were prophesied to spread to the north, east, south, and west. And in Isaiah chapter 43, we read, For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior, not anybody else's Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia, or Cush, and Seba for thee. So he is giving up these nations, and we could explain how this worked politically and militarily at the time but he is giving up these nations on behalf of the children of Israel. Since thou was precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable. They weren't really honorable in the eyes of men. They committed all these sins and they got deported by the Assyrians. But he still addresses them in this manner. Thou hast been honorable and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. There was a prophecy in Genesis chapter 49 that the horns of Joseph would push his people meaning the ten northern tribes, to the ends of the earth. And that's where they are now. They've inhabited the ends of the earth for many centuries now. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yeah, I have made him by my name. Christ, Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God incarnate. Jesus Christ, we were to be called, the children of Israel were to be called by a new name, which Yahweh himself shall name. None of those people who were scattered or taken captive by the time of Isaiah, by the time that Isaiah had recorded those words, were ever known as Jews. In fact, the word Jew does not appear in the King James Version of the Bible until 2 Kings chapter 16. And only then, in reference to certain 
people of Judah, who were driven from Elath by the Syrians. But it was never used in reference to any of the tribes of Israel or to any of the patriarchs of Israel who were already being taken into captivity by that time. Isaiah was already writing by that time, which is the time of King Ahaz of Judah. And in that passage of Isaiah, which we have just cited, Yahweh is clearly referring to his future intent to regather the tribes of the ancient children of Israel, which he had already dispersed abroad. We can identify those tribes in scripture and history. It is those tribes whom the apostles, by their own words, and 800 years after the captivities began, had sought to bring the gospel of Christ announcing that promised reconciliation, what we believe is not white supremacy, but rather it is God supremacy. Therefore, we also read in Isaiah chapter 27, as the children of Israel were about to be taken into that captivity, that he shall cause them that come out of Jacob to take root, even though they were about to be taken into captivity. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Who filled the face of the world with fruit? Everywhere we look in ancient history, we find no people identified as Jews scattered anywhere until the Roman period, during which some of the people of Judea had resettled in various Greek and Roman cities, and in Babylonia and the adjoining areas, some in Babylonia borders on Persia, and it borders on Arabia, and it borders on Syria. So we see that in the book of Acts, that Judeans were gathered from those places for that first Christian Pentecost in Jerusalem. And that's fine. They were remnants of the Judean captives in Babylonia, that old captivity of Judah, which never actually returned to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel and, and Ezra and Nehemiah. But concerning Israel, which was, to the, which was to fill the face of the world with fruit, we know where they went. And we are informed in Isaiah chapter 66, speaking of those people of the captivities, and I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them meaning those who managed to escape from the Assyrian captivity, unto the nations, to Tarshish. Tarshish is ancient Tartessus. It was in southeastern Spain, bordering on the Mediterranean. Pole. Pole is a, it's believed to be a word for a section of Assyria in northern Mesopotamia and Lud that draws the bow. Now, Lud is the ancient descendant of Shem from which the nation of the Lydians in central western Anatolia had sprung, and also the Etruscans. Though the Etruscans, by all accounts in the 
ancient Greek histories were a colony of the Lydians. To Tarshish, Pul, and Lud that draw the bow. To Tubal and Javan. Now, Tubal was a Jepethi tribe on the coast of the Black Sea, and Javan are the Athenians and the Ionian Greeks. And that's very demonstrable from both biblical texts and Persian inscriptions. To the isles or coastlands afar off that have not heard of my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles or nations. These captives of Israel are the Germanic tribes who began to invade all, all of these places between about 600 and 400 B.C. Actually, if you want to split hairs between about 612 B.C., where they first invaded and destroyed Phrygia and, and invaded Ionia, until 390 B.C., when they first invaded Etruria, the land of the Etruscans, and went and crossed the Rhine and ultimately crossed Gaul and crossed the Pyrenees and ended up all the way to Spain. Some of them went to Britain, the Kimri of the British. Only a couple of centuries after the prophet wrote, only a couple of centuries after they were taken into captivity, they began to appear and began to invade and conquer all of these territories where the prophet told us that they would go. We have historical records of their appearance in these places at this time. From the same ancient Assyrian and Persian inscriptions, and then from the Greek and Roman classical histories. The connections between the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity and the Germanic tribes which later appeared in these places and elsewhere in Europe can be confidently ascertained. So in the very next verse of Isaiah, the ongoing relationship which Yahweh intended for the same people is also ascertained. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts to my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith Yahweh as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of Yahweh. Now, while this prophecy has a transcendental meaning, which I'm not going to explain here this evening, once the pagan nations of Europe, which were descended from the ancient Israelites, had become Christians, they certainly did make such offerings in a literal sense. From England, Anglo-Saxon and Norm Norman kings, bishops, and commoners made pilgrimages, thousands and thousands of them, to Jerusalem, which sometimes took several years to accomplish. And I have links all throughout this portion of my text where you could click and see scholarly academic articles documenting this. <coughs> Excuse me. Many thousands of Germans, and even the kings of Scandinavia, made pilgrimages to Jerusalem in the Middle Ages. 
unless Arabs, Turks, or Tatars had barred the way, which happened at diverse times. The primary reason for the Crusades was to keep open the route to Jerusalem and to take once Christian lands back from those invading aliens. They failed, and that too is a subject of other prophecies. But they fulfilled this prophecy in Isaiah, literally and transcendentally. Now, returning once again to the captivities of ancient Israel, in spite of their having been taken away captive, a promise of a new covenant was made with those same people. This we read in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah wrote after 620 BC, I believe. It may have been 640. Forgive me if I'm a couple of years off. Jeremiah wrote after 620 BC and until after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. In this chapter, chapter 31, first Jeremiah speaks of the Israelites who had already been taken away as many as 120 years earlier than his time in at least many cases. And he says, at the same time, saith Yahweh, will I be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. It doesn't ever say that anybody else shall ever be his people. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword, those who escaped being slaughtered by the Assyrians in the battles to take all of their cities and lands, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. Even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest, and I could expound on that right through the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 12, but I won't, or this would be a four-hour program. Later in the same chapter, after we see that the children of Israel who survived the captivities would find grace with God in the wilderness, and that he will be their God, the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be his people. Later in the same chapter, we read an explicit promise of a new covenant, which is fulfilled in Christ. And Paul quoted this passage in relation to that covenant in Hebrews chapter 8. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. So if you're not one of their fathers, then you have no part in the new covenant. It's that simple. There's no language indicating that anybody else could possibly have a part in this covenant. So we have to imagine God to be a fool if other races can come into this covenant. There's no room. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, that Levitical covenant they broke. But the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, unconditional promises still stand. 
That's why Yahweh God promises reconciliation, to keep those unconditional promises. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. Yahweh God made this allegory all throughout prophets, all throughout the prophets, that he was the husband of the children of Israel collectively. They were his wife collectively. Christ called himself the bridegroom because he promised to betroth himself to Israel once again in Hosea chapter 2. But the law stood in the way and Christ had to die to free Israel from the law in order that he could betroth them once again. And Paul explains that in Romans chapter 7. He explains it exactly that way in Romans chapter 7, the first four or five verses. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They, the children of Israel, nobody else are going to be the people of God under the new covenant. Show me one place where it says anything like that explicitly, not with some crazy church interpretation about spiritual sperm or Paul saying all men in some epistle when that's taken out of context. All does not always mean all. When Jeremiah began to write, for the most part, the only Israelites left in Palestine were those who survived the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians about 80 years before the siege by Sennacherib or Sennacherib. None of those who had been taken by Assyria were ever called Jews. And they certainly were not Jews. They were Israelites. But they had long been practicing paganism, for which reason they were taken into captivity. Even in Jeremiah, the scriptures tell us where they were, as we read in chapter 3, where the prophet was instructed to go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith Yahweh. And I will, cause, I will not cause my anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith Yahweh. And I will not keep my anger forever. As we have explained, and as we have seen that Isaiah also informs us, those children of Israel taken captive had ultimately become the Germanic tribes of the north. Yahweh didn't want them to return to Palestine, but to him. They did that in Christ. If you study early Christian history, you'll learn that the various tribes of the Goths and the Allens had accepted, received and accepted Christianity sometime before the Romans. I don't know how long before, but they were already Christians, many of them, before Rome accepted Christianity. But this is why the original apostles of Christ 
had brought Christianity to Europe and to various places in Anatolia and Mesopotamia. Because that is where the ancient Israelites had gone as they escaped from captivity. The coasts of Europe are also where Israelites were settling as they traveled by sea for centuries before the captivity. So Paul of Tarsus told the Galatians, descendants of the Assyrian captives, that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. In the Old Testament, in places such as the 147th Psalm, it's fully evident that only the children of Israel were given the law. David rejoiced that God had not done so with any other nation. He came to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, that word adoption doesn't really mean adoption. And the whole phrase, adoption of sons, comes from a Greek term, huiothesia, which means the position or placement of someone who is already a son. It doesn't mean adoption. In Romans chapter 9, actually a different word meant adoption, which was ispoiesis, which meant to make somebody into something. When you adopted somebody, the Greeks used that word ispoiesis, to make you into a son. Quiothesia is to have the position of a son, because not all children were heirs in the ancient Greek and Roman worlds. You had to be appointed an heir. In Romans chapter 9, Paul stated explicitly that the so-called adoption of which he spoke was for Israel alone, for his kinsmen according to the flesh. The adoption being for Israel, we know from all of this history and archaeology that the, the Galatians were descended from Israel. We believe the scriptures. We believe in the supremacy of God. And for that we are hated even by many of our own fellow white Europeans. After Paul completed his ministry, it is evident that Peter wrote two epistles to the same assemblies in Anatolia, which Paul and his companions had founded. And in those epistles, Peter spoke of the veracity of Paul's teachings while admitting that they were sometimes hard to understand. So Peter's epistles were addressed to these strangers. That word for strangers in the King James Version actually means sojourners, somebody who's living in a land that's really not their own. The strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Then he told them, in chapter 2 of his first epistle, but ye are a chosen generation, and we will talk about that word momentarily, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, singular nation, singular 
people, singular generation. That word genos is generation there. A peculiar people that ye should throw the praises, show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness. Now, if we read those 25 chapters at the end of Isaiah, the children of Israel are several times described as being in darkness because they were being, they, they were in the captivity and alienated from God who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christ coming to reconcile them, he was the light came into the world. And that word genos, the Greek word for generation, actually means race. God didn't choose a generation in the sense of a group of people all living at one time. If that were the case, there could be no Christians after that generation. It doesn't say generations. It says generation, singular, and nation, singular, and peculiar people, singular, not a conglomeration of people of different races and nations and peoples. Yahweh God chose a race, which were all the children of Israel, although at this time they were divided into many nations, they were still originated in one nation. And Peter was writing to a portion of them, to some of the 12 tribes scattered abroad, who were also addressed by James in his single surviving epistle. James wrote to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Flavius Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Judeans, and many other ancient historical writers would admit that there were only two tribes in Judea. James wasn't writing to Jews. He was writing to 12 tribes scattered abroad. They were the recipients of his epistle. Therefore, his epistle cannot apply to anybody but those people to whom he wrote. The proof of this is in the very next verse of Peter's epistle where he continues in chapter 2 to address them, and he says, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. Peter knew what he was writing. He wasn't writing to non-Israelites. He wasn't telling people of other races that they could now be the Peter, people of God. Peter wasn't doing that. He knew exactly what he was writing because this was a citation of Hosea chapter 1 where the prophet who wrote at the same time as the beginning of the ministry of Isaiah had addressed the tribes of, northern, of the northern kingdom of Israel which were about to be taken into captivity and he wrote, Then said God, Call his name, Yahweh God had commanded Hosea to have a son, and he was making, and then another son, or another child, and he was making, I think it was a daughter, perhaps, and, and he was making an example of them. It may have been two sons. I'm sorry, I forget. He was making an example of them in their names, and the first one was named Lo-Ami, which means you are not my people, and the second one was named Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy. We're only 
going to quote concerning the first son, Lo-Ami. Then God said, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people. These children which Hosea had were representative of God's plan for Israel being worked through the prophet, being explained in this manner as an allegory through the life of the prophet. Call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. He was putting them off in captivity. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, where it was said to them, this prophecy can only apply to them. In the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people. There it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God. That is what Peter was doing. Calling those same people who were not my people, the sons of God. It is a portion of these people whom Peter had described as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, and the children of God. Language which was taken directly from Leviticus and Deuteronomy and from Hosea. And Peter was applying it to scattered children of Israel, but none of them were Jews. This is not white supremacy to accept the words of God, which he transmitted through his prophets and apostles. But rather, it is God's supremacy. As it was originally used by Irenaeus, that's the earliest use I've found so far, a bishop in Gaul in the late second century, and by others after him, the word Catholic referred to the reception of the faith and not to its application. Basically, the term means down hole, catahollis, down hole, as the faith which was received from the apostles included a belief that both Old and New Testaments were relevant and instrumental to those who received it. So in that manner, Identity Christians are the true Catholics because we endeavor to understand and we accept the entire body of Scripture, Old Testament and New, except for a few minor problems and spurious passages here and there. So why are we evil? being white men and women who believe God and recognize the truths of Scripture. According to the prophets and the apostles of Christ, the children of Israel continued to be a special and peculiar people in the eyes of God even long after they were sent off into captivity, for which reason he promised a new covenant with them. Another promise of a new covenant is found in the prophecy of Ezekiel who was a contemporary of Jeremiah, in Ezekiel chapter 37. And David my servant shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments, 
and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in a land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, and they and their children, and their children's children forever. And that's because sperm is physical. Sperm is not spiritual. There's no such thing as spiritual seed. They and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever, a type for Christ. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. Ezekiel was writing this after Jerusalem had been destroyed. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the heathen or nations, because that word is often mistranslated as heathen. It doesn't necessarily refer to non-Israelites or pagans. It refers to the nations descended from Abraham through Jacob Israel. And the nation shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore, in the midst of those nations. That land given to Jacob, according to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, according to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, and other scriptures, is somewhere other than Palestine. As Samuel had told David that the children of Israel would be taken from Palestine and moved to another place where they would remain forever. So it's not to be assumed that the land which Yahweh gave to Jacob is limited to Palestine. From the time of the promises to Abraham, there are no other covenants for any other people but those covenants which Yahweh God had promised to the children of Israel. And the new covenant in Christ is also exclusively for the children of Israel, as the prophets had declared. Therefore, Jesus Christ himself, during the time of his ministry, had announced on several occasions and in different ways that he came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The apostles of Christ never kept their focus on the Jews, except for fear of the Jews. And they never put their focus on anyone of any other race. Rather, James wrote in his epistle to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, and Paul of Tarsus, 28 years after the crucifixion, had announced that I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise of God made unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. They were even serving God in captivity because their existence was going to be used for him to fulfill his will and his word, whether they like it or not, whether they enjoyed it or not. In Luke chapter 1, 
the very purpose of the coming of Christ is stated. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Of course, the people now known as Jews who have elevated themselves above Christ, his apostles, and his true people, have certainly acted as the enemies of us all. But we are not racists for the sake of being racists. Rather, we believe that we are of God, and if we are racists, then we are racists only for the sake of God. As the scriptures plainly state, that we are to be and to remain a separate and peculiar people. That is not white supremacy. It is an obedience to God who is supreme. We believe and have our faith in the word of that God. And for that, our fellow whites, even those who claim to be Christian, despise us. Yet for that same reason, many, if not all, of the identity Christians, whom we have known these past 23 years, have lamented the blindness of our white kindred as to their true origins and purpose, and have wondered just when it will be that our people shall awaken from their slumber. But that also is entirely within the providence of Yahweh our God, so here we shall present a discussion by Clifton Emmerheiser in regard to that very dilemma, which is titled, When Will All of Israel Be Awakened to Their Identity? So Clifton begins by saying, This is a very important question which I was asked by an astute lady whom I will not name. While Clifton and I had spoken of this subject frequently over the years, here we learn that an inquiry by a woman, whose identity is lost to me now, if I ever even knew it. I don't really remember asking him, but I probably did. That she had been the catalyst for his writing this paper. Many of the things which Clifton had written over the 20-year course of his ministry were inspired by questions or disputes from his readers. And that is even how I myself had come to know him. So he begins. Of course, when we make mention of this subject, we are talking about how the 12 tribes of Israel were blinded to who they were because they had been unfaithful to their husband, Yahweh. Because Israel had been disloyal on many occasions and repeatedly chastened for that disloyalty. Eventually, it became evident to Yahweh, her husband, that he had no other alternative but to give her a writ of divorce. And, even though it was explicit that Israel received a writ of divorce, it's also fully evident in the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel 
that Judah also received a writ of divorce. In fact, in Ezekiel, there's an entire chapter announcing that. I don't have it right now. Upon that divorce, Yahweh put away and punished the 12 tribes of Israel for seven times. And Clifton has in parentheses, i.e., 2,520 years. So he cites Leviticus chapter 26, 18, which states, And if ye will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Now, Clifton did not explain it here, probably because when one is writing about a subject of scripture or history, it is difficult to provide all of the prerequisite information provided, all the prerequisite information necessary, by which to explain to a reader precisely what is meant by every statement. So quite often we must take for granted that our readers already know and understand at least some of the things which we mention. Yet a neophyte would almost certainly be ignorant of what Clifton had in mind where he refers to seven times, even though Clifton identifies it as 2,520 years. The Hebrew word, idan, I-D-D-A-N, Strong's number 5732 can refer to a calendar year or to a more general period of time, depending upon the context. In Daniel chapter 4, we see the book of Nezar was to be punished for seven times. And within the context of his own life, that most likely referred to seven calendar years. But in other prophetic contexts, it can mean a much greater length of time. It is evident in three places of Scripture that very frequently in prophecy, a prophetic day should be interpreted as a year in history. The first is the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. That prophesied the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the coming of the Messiah. And comparing it to the subsequent history of Judea and the actual time of the advent of the Messiah, it is certain that each day in the 70 weeks period represented a calendar year. Christ having begun his ministry 483 years or 69 weeks of years, 69 times 7 being 483, after the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which was accomplished in the days of Ezra, not the rebuilding of the temple, which was accomplished in the days of Nehemiah, I'm sorry, of Zerubbabel. The rebuilding of the temple was accomplished under Zerubbabel in 520 to 516 B.C., the rebuilding of the walls was accomplished under the time of Nehemiah from 502 to 490 BC. And the rebuilding of the city, which is what the prophecy states in Daniel, was accomplished under 
Ezra from 459 to 458 BC is when it started, sometime right in there. And there's reasons for that, which I explain in a paper at Christagenia. Um, I forget the title of it. I'm sorry. It's the chronology of the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. It's found in the references section at Christagenia. The second place where it is evident that a day is a year in prophecy is in Ezekiel in chapter 4, where the prophet was told, as an example, that thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. There is more language in there concerning the iniquity of Israel, I believe. Thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. In this respect, Numbers chapter 14, verse 34 must also be noted. There we see that the children of Israel would be punished commensurately with the number of days they had spied the land of Canaan. And we read, After the number of days in which you search the land, even forty days, each day for a year, ye shall bear your iniquities, even forty years, as you shall know my breach of promise. The children of Israel then embarked on their wandering in the desert for 40 years. The third place is twofold, where we see similar language in Isaiah chapters 34 and 63. And we shall read them both here at once. The first says, For it is the day of Yahweh's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. And the second, For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Understanding the use of the Hebrew parallelism, we should see in that prophecy a day often represents a year. And I believe both those passages refer to this period where we're in, where I also identify as the time of Jacob's trouble. Once this method of prophetic interpretation is understood, the meaning of many prophecies come to light, especially where the prophecy durations of kingdoms and empires are concerned. That is most evident in Daniel chapter 7 and in Revelation chapter 13. So where Clifton cites the seven times of Leviticus chapter 26, he refers to the three and a half times that the children of Israel suffered under pagan empires, which is prophesied as 42 months in Revelation chapter 13, 42 months being 36 months plus six months being three and a half years, three and a half times, three and a half years or 1260 years, understanding that each day is a year, 42 times 30. And that was followed by the three and a half times that they were prophesied to suffer under papal Rome, the little horn, prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. And other prophecies in those same books also indicate that this is the proper interpretation. Those seven times amount to 
2,520 years, which is indeed the time from the Assyrian deportations of the children of Israel to the diminishing of the temporal powers of the popes of Rome and the introduction of the democratic system which replaced the nobility. So after 2,520 years, the children of Israel began to govern themselves, supposedly, they imagined, being free of the tyranny of kings and popes. But now we believe that the children of Israel are in another prophetic time, which is called the time of Jacob's trouble. And imagining to govern themselves, they are even worse off than they were under kings and popes because now they're actually under the power of gold, which is in the hand of the Jews. They're governed by Satan. So with this explanation clarifying these seven times, Clifton continues, and he says, This punishment didn't start all at the same time, but was spread over a period of 160 years. To get a biblical, historical, and archaeological perspective on the de of the deportations of the House of Israel and the House of Judah, I will quote from an outline history of the 70 Weeks Nation by the Reverend Alban Heath. And the portion which Clifton quotes has to do with the deportations, but not really the 70 Weeks Nation, which is that 490-year period of Judea until the coming of the Messiah. The first, quoting Reverend Alban Heath, who did pretty well with this, <coughs> the first of these deportations was in the time of Tiglath-Pileser, who reigned over Assyria from 745 to 727 BC. So Clifton's saying this punishment unfolded over a 160-year period because some of the children of Israel were had begun to be deported into captivity in 741 BC. But those deportations didn't come to an absolute conclusion until the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Now, by some chronologies, that's 585. So we're always going to be off a little. But that's a actually like a 165 or 166 year period. So we're just rounding here, right? Talking about 3,000 years ago to be a year or two off isn't any big deal. In the days of Pekah, now this actually happened in 741. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he took Ejan, and Abel-Bethmachah, and Janua, and Kadesh, and Hazor, and Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and carried them captive to Assyria. 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29. Of course, I already cited that earlier this evening, but that's fine. And the God of Israel stirred up the king, the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, and the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. And he carried them away, even the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and brought them into Halah and Habor and Hara and to the river Gozan until this day. And there he's citing 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 26. 
So there are two major deportations of children of Israel beginning from about 741 BC recorded in those two passages. These captives, Clifton says, were of the ten tribe Israel, as distinct from the house of Judah, and they were taken to the country we now know as Mesopotamia. The British Museum authorities identify Pul, P-U-L, with Tiglath-Pileser, and Pul is mentioned as a country in Isaiah chapter 66, for which reason we can't do any better than to identify it as a portion of Assyria. But we cannot really be sure of that. The other nations listed in Isaiah chapter 66, to which the children of Israel would be found, where Yahweh would send them, where the Germanic nations, tribes later appeared, they can all be identified with certainty, as I have done here. Where we read here until this day, it can be demonstrated from internal evidence, evidence concerning which I have not yet written, that the books of Chronicles were compiled in the 5th century BC, in the time of Ezra, from the remains of older and probably more comprehensive chronicles of the old kingdom of Judah. This is found in 2 Chronicles chapters 3 and 6, where the genealogies of certain families of the tribes of Judah and Levi are carried down to the time of Ezra. But those of the other tribes are not. However, in the classical Greek histories of the same period, in the regions identified here in the Bible as the new settlements of the Israelites, we find people called Sake or Scythian, and later Galatahi, where the ancient Assyrian records show them to be the Bit Qumri. Let me say that Sake is a Persian word that the Greeks used. Scythian is a word that the Greeks used to describe the Sake, and Galatahi is a later word that the Greeks used to describe Scythians. So they're all the same. We had Persian and Scythian, I believe, is actually a Hebrew word that the Greeks got from the Sake themselves, and I have reason to believe that. Scythoi certainly refers to people who dwelt in tents, which the children of Israel were prophesied that they were going to do in their captivity to dwell in tents. And the Greeks described the Scythians as dwelling only in tents, sometimes tents affixed to the top of their ox carts so that they were a type of covered wagon. So now you know when that was invented. In later Greek literature, from the 4th century BC, they were called Galatahi. I won't digress and explain the reasons for that, but I think I know them also. But that is from where the Romans got the word Gaul. So where we find people called Sake, Scythian, and later Galatahi, they are in these areas where the children of Israel, to which the children of Israel were deported. But the Assyrians, in the Assyrian records, they are called Bit Qumri, for which reason the Greeks called them Chimerians, because they were called Qumri. Bit 
is a word which means house, and it's the the Assyrians were Shemites and spoke a, a, a language that was very similar to Hebrew in many ways. So bit means house, like Beth in Hebrew means house. And sometimes that's just called Bet, B-E-T. Kumri is a guttural form of Amri. The Assyrians called the Imra the, the Israelites bit Kumri after the house of Amri, one of their notable kings. In Hebrew, the name Amri begins with a guttural sound that was omitted in English translation. It was just dropped. So Kumri is indeed the Amri of our Bibles. And the context in which the name Kumri appears in very many Assyrian, man Assyrian inscriptions proves beyond doubt that Kumri was the Amri of our Bibles. One other thing found in Assyrian, in Assyrian inscriptions, which is not mentioned in our Bibles, is that when the Assyrians began their encroachments on Syria, Amri and his son Ahab had sent armies to help resist them. The struggle is given passing notice in Scripture in 2 Kings chapter 14 and in Isaiah chapter 10, but it is often overlooked. In the time of David, Israel had ruled over Damascus and other towns in Syria and along the coasts all the way to Hamath in northern Syria. In Isaiah chapter 10, as Israel is being threatened by Assyria, we read where Assyria is the subject and Yahweh God is using them to execute his judgment. And he says, is not Kalno as Carchemish? The Assyrians had already destroyed Carchemish, the capital city of the, the Hittites in northern, northeastern Anatolia. So is not Kalno as Carchemish, because that's also destroyed. Is not Hamath as Arpad. Is not Samaria as Damascus, because Samaria had been destroyed. The Assyrians had also already taken prisoner many Israelites, as well as many Syrians, from these places further north and brought them into captivity, but it's not in our biblical records. Then, shortly after the time of Amri and Ahab, in the days of Jeroboam II, there was a short-lived revival. And we read in 2 Kings chapter 14, that he restored. Now, this is before the captivities, that this struggle is going on. And we read of Jeroboam, Jeroboam 2, that he restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the Sea of the Plain, according to the word of Yahweh God of Israel, which he spoke by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. Now, that prophecy is missing in our modern book of Jonah, the, the, the version that survived to us, which was of Gath Hefer. For Yahweh saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And Yahweh said that he would 
And Yahweh said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might and how he warred and how he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah for Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? This Jeroboam too ruled Israel from about 793 to 753 BC. And here, once this struggle is seen in Isaiah 10 and in 2 Kings chapter 14, it becomes evident as to why Tiglath-Pileser turned and invaded Israel in 741 BC, 12 years after Jeroboam II. So Clifton continues, but where he says the next deportation, we would only consider it to be the next deportation of which we have records, because the entire narrative has certainly not survived, but it's evident, it is evident that there had to be other deportations. <coughs> I'm sorry. The next deportation was in the time of Shalmaneser V who was king of Assyria from 727 to 722 BC. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And the king of Assyria did carry away Israel unto Assyria and put them in Halah and in Habor, but the river goes on, and in the cities of the Medes, citing 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 9 and 11. Clifton says Samaria was in the country of Israel. Again, the captives were deported to Mesopotamia. Actually, Samaria was in Ephraim. Now, we've already seen that earlier, this is 721 BC, actually, which I will explain shortly. But Shalmanasar put Samaria under siege. And this is 20 years after all of those Israelites were taken captive that were from Galilee and the northern tribes. And... Almost 20 years after, Tiglath-Pileser had taken away captive the Israelites, the two and a half tribes described as being taken captive on the west bank, I'm sorry, on the eastern bank of the Jordan, across the Jordan. So if Shalmanazar had carried on an extended siege of Samaria, which was not actually taken until the time of Sargon, then there must have been many other cities in the lands of Ephraim and Manasseh which were taken before Samaria actually fell, and many more Israelites sent into captivity, of which we have no extant records, no surviving records. An army cannot simply march into a populated country like Ephraim, where the people were accustomed to war, and take only the capital city, besiege and take only the capital city. So next we read from Clifton. Sargon II, who ruled Assyria from 722 to 705 BC, does not appear in Old Testament history. Isaiah makes one passing reference to him, but his dealings with Israel find no mention in the sacred writings. And this is Clifton citing the History to Seventy Weeks Nation by Reverend Alban Heath. But Sargon himself has left the following inscription. 
In the beginning of my reign, the city of Samaria, I besieged. I captured 27,280 of its inhabitants I carried away. Fifty chariots in the midst of them I collected, and the rest of their goods I seized. I set my governor over them and laid upon them tribute and taxes like those of the Assyrians. Now a nation under siege and being destroyed would not leave many records, and its history would have to be written later, perhaps by others, if it were written at all. So in 2 Kings chapter 17, there was a mention of a king of Assyria who besieges Samaria for three years and finally destroys it and carried Israel away captive to Assyria. So we see that there were at least 27,280 captives by the Assyrian inscriptions. It was Shalmaneser who began the three-year siege, but he died before its success in 722 B.C. So Sargon, his successor, continued the siege, and Samaria fell the following year in 721. The records are not entirely clear, as it, it can be told from the text in 2 Kings chapter 17 that the perspective of the writer has shifted, and he is writing in retrospect of events that happened before his time. So it is evident that 2 Kings was compiled and written from more ancient records contemporary to the events, but the final chapters were added as there were no original records. The final chapters were added later. This is clear, as we have said, in 2 Kings 17.23, where it says, So was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. That day may also have been as late as the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I would bet that it was as late as the 5th century BC. Continuing with Clifton's citation of Alban Heath. Later, the southern kingdom fell a victim to the ravages of heathen rulers. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sometimes I say Sennacherib, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, did come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13. While the scriptures are silent on the subject of deportations at this time, Sennacherib himself has left the following record. And this is part of a much larger inscription with a lot more detail. But it says in part, And Hezekiah, king of Judah, who had not bowed down at my feet, 46 of his strong cities, his castles, and the smaller towns in their neighborhood beyond number with warlike engines, I attacked and captured 200,150 people, small and great, male and female, horses, mares, asses, camels, oxen, and sheep beyond number from the midst of them. I carried off and distributed them as spoil. He himself, like a bird in a cage, inside Jerusalem, his royal city, I shut him up. The Bible itself tells us a much different story of Sennacherib's failure to take Jerusalem. But we see that rulers and governments in that time 
also employed propaganda to portray themselves in a positive light, even when they failed. As a digression, this Sennacherib did succeed in his endeavor to destroy ancient Babylon, which the Book of Nezar was given credit for later rebuilding in chapter 4, verse 30 of the Book of Daniel. It is evident in Scripture that Assyrian incursions into the land of Israel continued to the time of Esarhaddon until around 676 B.C. Esarhaddon is mentioned in Isaiah, Ezra, and 2 Kings chapter 19. Now Clifton's source moves on to the Babylonian deportations. When Neo-Babylon, because there was a first or earlier Babylonian empire, actually almost 1,500 years before this one, when Neo-Babylon overthrew the ascendancy of Assyria, which is only partially true, and became itself the supreme power, the book of Nezar, who ruled from 604 to 561 BC, imposed his heavy yoke upon the king and the kingdom of Judah. The vassalage began in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar. In the days of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant. Soon after Jehoiakim had died, in the days of his son and successor Jehoiachin, many of the chief men and princes of Judah were taken to Babylon, taken captive to Babylon, among which were the future prophet Daniel, and his companions. When Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC, or perhaps 585, all of the survivors were taken and resettled in Babylonia, except a few who were left behind under a governor. Clifton now responds to his source. This testimonial from An Outline History of the Seventy Weeks Nation by the Reverend Alban Heath is only a brief recap of the evidence of a much longer and complicated story, where we have tried to fill in some of the pieces which we esteem to be of importance. So Clifton continues. Up to this point, Yahweh had married the 12 tribes of Israel, but because his wife on many occasions proved to be habitually unfaithful, he finally divorced her and put her away in punishment for 2,520 years, which would last approximately until the 1800s A.D. We should also take into account the fact that the 12 tribes were not, take, were not all taken captive at the same time. So also, their 2,520 years of punishment would not end at the same time. Now, for some tribes, it would last into the 20th century. And as we also mentioned, the time of Jacob's trouble, prophesied by Jeremiah, we believe that correlates with the prophecy in Revelation chapter 17, where it is said that the children of Israel would give their kingdom unto the beast. For various reasons, we believe that in turn must refer to the time when the nations of Christendom fell into the hands of the world's globalist international bankers, the so-called princes of this world, who are mostly Jews. That is not a coincidence. But neither is this. The archaeology, which we have discussed thus far, 
began to be revealed to the Western world as the expanding British Empire opened up the old world of the East to exploration by European scholars. In the 1800s, British, German, and French archaeologists were crawling all over Palestine, the Levant, Syria, Assyria, Babylonia, because the English Empire, the British Empire, enabled them to do that, having taken control of those lands. It's that simple. Until then, scholars had absolutely no ability to enter those lands and, and, and to begin to, to begin exploring and putting shovels in the ground just to see what they might come up with. That's what started Christian identity. Nothing else. I mean, yeah, the first manifestation of that wasn't perfect. It was far from perfect, and it was very quickly infiltrated by the enemies of Christ and, and taken over for their purposes. There's no doubt. British Israelism wasn't perfect, but it was based on scholarship. So this process of learning our identity from digging holes in the ground began in the 18th century, but especially from the 1850s, after Austin Henry Laird began to dig the palaces, libraries, and multilingual inscriptions of the Assyrians out of the mounds of ancient ruins in Mesopotamia. This age of discovery is what gave birth to the first consciousness of, of our Christian Israel identity, which Clifton now discusses. He says, therefore, we should not be surprised that a man by the name of John Wilson, who was born at Kilmarnock, Scotland, in 1779 A.D., commenced an inquiry into the Israelitish, Israelitish origin of the Anglo-Saxons in the year 1837 A.D. So whatever information Wilson had in 1837, when he began his quest, because there were already excavations in Palestine and various places by then, the Rosetta Stone was discovered by um, Frenchmen in the days of Napoleon, 40 years before that, perhaps, I'm guessing, but it was probably about 40 years before that. It was at the very end of the 18th century, if I'm not mistaken, that the Rosetta Stone was discovered and taken back to France and, and deciphered. So archaeology had been, had been going on for decades before John Wilson. But whatever information he had when he began his quest, it certainly led him in the right direction. And all subsequent archaeology in the area has verified his conclusions. But now Clifton turns to scripture and the reason for our ignorance, which is the reason that most white Christians today still do not understand their identity as ancient Israel. Clifton says, the reason that the 12 tribes forgot their origins is explained in Isaiah chapter 29, which states, for Yahweh has poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep. And has closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers has he covered. And the vision of all is become unto you 
as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he says, I am not learned. Clifton now responds and says, Here, the moral to the story is, don't ask your pastor or priest, no matter how educated he might be, or your less educated relatives or friends, but check it out for yourself. Likewise, don't take my word for it, as Scripture makes each individual Israelite responsible for the truthfulness and accuracy of this account. In other words, Clifton's saying, when you hear this Israel identity message, you might think it's crazy, but go check it out for yourself, because we're not crazy. Additionally, he says, if you are a descendant of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and if Yahweh doesn't lift his spirit of sleep from off of you, you'll not understand it until he does. And I've also had much experience with that. If somebody's, if that switch isn't hit, and only Yahweh God can hit that switch, no matter how much history, scripture, Greek language, archaeology that you know, the person you're speaking to is not going to get it. Clifton says, and no, this spirit of sleep was not placed on the converso Edomite Jews. This is absolutely true, as all of the supposedly learned men of today, the theologians and pastors and bishops of the world, can study all they want, yet cannot understand the prophecies of Yahweh or the parables of Christ. So they admit they cannot understand the revelation of Christ, or they dump it all into some comic book scenario, which they claim will not unfold until far into the future, relieving them of any responsibility to figure it out. Yet it has been unfolding, and is actually mostly unfolded over these past few thousand years. But understanding the identity of the Jews is a crucial element in understanding Christian identity and also explains both why and how the origin of the modern Europeans has been kept from the world. But listening to the Jews themselves, who are the very enemies of God and Christ, as the scriptures attest, Christians will forever be deceived. How do you believe somebody that Jesus Christ called a liar? How do you believe a race of people that Jesus Christ explained, were characteristically liars. How do you do that? This deception, characterized by what we may call replacement theology, crept into the Christian churches during the persecutions in the second century after Christ. And for that reason, true apostolic Christianity has never been taught by the Roman Catholic or any so-called Orthodox Church or any Protestant Church. But there is no such thing 
as replacement theology in scripture. Reading the early so-called church fathers, the Jews began to teach replacement theology in Palestine. From there, it made its way into the Christian schools of Alexandria, where it adopted elements of Gnosticism, and from there, it made its way to Rome. So now, because he could not take for granted that his readers would notice, Clifton tries to explain in a short space the true identity of the Jews, whom he refers to as converso-Edomite Jews. But in truth, the word Judaism was first applied in the Greek language to the particular religion of Judea. While Clifton says, to confirm the mass conversion of Edomites to Israelitism, which they Talmudized into Judaism. That's not quite um, that's not quite accurate, but the truth is that the true religion of the Jews is the Talmud, and they did corrupt the religion of Israel after they had been converted into something that more closely resembled the Talmud. So Clifton is right in a not-quite-accurate sort of way. But he says, to confirm the mass conversion of Edomites to Israelitism, read Josephus's Antiquities, Book 13, Chapter 9, Paragraph 1, which states in part, Hyrcanus, John Hyrcanus was the high priest in Jerusalem. He ascended to that position as he inherited it, probably about 130 BC, give or take a year. And I will discuss him a little later. But at that time, the high priests in Jerusalem also acted as the rulers of the nation. And the kings of Judah were, were if you understand the curse of Jeconiah in Jeremiah, were, they were cursed in a way that they were told that they would never again rule over the nation, the descendants of Jeconiah. So none of the royal family of Judah, from which Christ had descended, from which the stepfather of Christ had descended, they none of them could ever sit on the throne because they bore the curse of Jeremiah. Christ inherited that throne, but he wasn't a literal, a physical descendant of Jeconiah, so he didn't bear the curse. So when Hyrcanus became high priest, and I will explain why this happened, Hyrcanus took also Dora and Marisa, cities of Edomia, and subdued all the Edomians and permitted them to stay in that country if they would circumcise their genitals and make use of the laws of the Jews, or properly Judeans. And they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers, the country their forefathers had taken for themselves after Israel and Judah were taken into captivity. And that's explained in Ezekiel chapter 35, that's actually prophesied, that they submitted to the use of circumcision and the rest of the Jewish ways of living, or Judean, at which time, therefore, this befell them, that 
they were hereafter no other than Jews or Judeans. Josephus is telling us that in, and this happened approximately 129 BC, Hyrcanus forced all of the Edomites of Dora and Marisa. Now, Dora is ancient Dor. It's on a seacoast. It was a significant city in the land of Manasseh, but the Edomites moved into it after the Assyrian deportations of Israel and took it for themselves. And Marisa is ancient Marashah. It was a significant city in the land of Judah in ancient times. So the Edomites had taken all this land for themselves. And now Clifton states in response, a footnote on the same page. This is the Whiston translation of Flavius Joseph, Josephus that's published by Hendrickson's. And this footnote was a footnote of Whiston. A footnote on the same page makes the following comment on this passage, Whiston being the most notable translator of Josephus. And I believe back in the 1700s, if I'm not mistaken, he did this translation. A footnote on the same page makes the following comment on this passage. This account of the Edomians admitting circumcision and the entire Jewish law from this time or from the days of Hyrcanus is confirmed by their entire history afterwards. This, in the opinion of Josephus, made them proselytes of justice or entire Jews. Because Josephus was raised a Pharisee, he was blind to the consequences of this. They didn't teach the Pharisees the scriptures. All of their intercourse with Christ proves that. The Pharisees didn't really know the scriptures. However, Antigonus, the enemy of Herod, now Antigonus was actually one of the Hasmoneans, Though Herod were derived from such a proselyte of justice, meaning an Edomite convert, for several generations, will allow him to be no more than half a Jew, because they wouldn't admit that he was a true Judean. Not all of the Israelites had agreed with these conversions. Ammonius, a grammarian, says, The Jews are such by nature and from the beginning." While the Edomians are not Jews from the beginning, but being afterwards subdued by the Jews are compelled to be circumcised and to unite into one nation and be subject to the same laws, they were called Jews. So Wiston cited Ammonius. And he also cites Dio, who was a Roman historian. And he says, Dio also says, that country is also called Judea and the people Jews. And this name is given also to as many as embrace their religion, though of other nations. Now, I personally have not read Dio or Ammonius, but I've read many other Greek and Roman classics. And I've cited Strabo of Cappadocia, who said several times in book 16 of his geography that the Edomians or Edomites and the Jews, or Judeans, all lived to, together in Judea and practiced the same customs and the same law. Strabo said that very clearly, and it supports everything that Josephus said about the conversions of the Edomites into the religion of 
Jerusalem at the time, which we could really only call Judaism because it's not the religion of the Old Testament any longer. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, Yahweh God said that he hates Esau. The Edomites and the Canaanites were not welcome to be circumcised and practice the religion of the Old Testament. The books of the Maccabees, which carry the history of the Hasmonean dynasty, who were also popularly, popularly called the Maccabees, it carries their history down to the ascension of John Hyrcanus, mentioned here, but they include nothing of his actual rule as high priest. If you read these books, 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees is actually not after 1st Maccabees. It, it's a different recitation and compilation of the same history from the same period written by Jason of Cyrene. And Jason of Cyrene had used slightly different sources and has some accounts that aren't in 1 Maccabees, but they sort of complement one another. So... These books say nothing of the actual rule of John Hyrcanus, but they do say a lot about the rule of his predecessors. And until that time, it is quite clear that it was the policy of the predecessors of Hyrcanus to drive out the Edomites and Canaanites who had settled in the lands which were left vacant by the captivities of Israel and Judah. They would drive them out. They would burn down their cities. However, while they were successful militarily, they did not have sufficient numbers of people to populate those towns and cities for themselves in order to keep them out. So they kept moving back in. So in the time of John Hyrcanus, the policy was changed. And instead, he began forcibly converting them to Judaism, promising peace if they followed the religion and laws of Jerusalem by which they would actually be ruled from Jerusalem. This policy must have been successful because it was continued under the successors of Hyrcanus. And it must have been quite effective because under Alexander Janius, who ruled Jerusalem from 103 to 76 BC, he extended it to over 30 other cities and regions of Palestine, which Josephus explains later in that same book, book 13 of his antiquities. Therefore, when the Romans came and conquered Judea from around 63 BC, they appointed Herod the Edomite, who sided with them as their king. And from that time, he appointed his fellow Edomites into many of the positions of power and authority in Judea. Most of the population by this time was not Israelite but Canaanite or Edomite, and the New Testament fully reflects this historical truth. Greek and Roman historians such as Strabo and Dio corroborate the accounts of Josephus, and so do Christ and his apostles. This is why the Jews are not the so-called chosen people 
But once again, we are slandered merely for understanding this history and for believing the consequences of it, which are fully explained in the New Testament. So we are smeared with labels such as anti-Semite and racist because we are said to hate Jews. But the truth is that we despise Jews because they rejected Christ and because Christ and his apostles also despised Jews. Jesus Christ stood in the temple and told the Jews, as it is recorded in John chapter 8, that if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham, which they never did. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Then he proceeded to tell them that neither Abraham nor God himself were their fathers, that they were not from Abraham or God. In John chapter 10, Christ professed that my sheep hear my voice and told his enemies, the Jews, that you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. We would rather believe Jesus than the Jews. If Jesus Christ told those Jews they are not his sheep, we cannot believe that they were Israelites. So how do modern Christians believe that the Jews could possibly bear the blessings of Abraham if Abraham, according to Jesus Christ, was not their father, as John had written in his first epistle? Whosoever denieth the Son, the same has not the Father. How could Christians ever think that God is going to bless the Jews if they don't even have God and God isn't even their Father? Whosoever denieth the Son, the same has not the Father. And then in his second epistle he wrote, Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. If there be any come to if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, meaning the doctrine of Christ, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Now that's archaic language. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. If you even greet. That's what Godspeed, to bid someone Godspeed means. If you even greet a Jew, you share in his sins. If you're a Christian, you greet a Jew. That's what the Apostle John is telling us here. You greet a Jew, you're as guilty for that Jew's sins as the Jew is. You're a partaker of his evil deeds as he loots and pillages your people. <laughs> It is evident there that Christians are commanded to despise Jews. And therefore, the only legitimate Christianity, the only true Catholic Christianity, is what we call Christian identity. We're the only Christians that actually follow Christ. The only Christians that follow Christ. Period. All these other so-called Christians, they worship Jews. They love Jews more than Jesus. Now, going back to the identity of the Israel of God, whom Paul 
in the closing verses of his epistle to the Galatians, had identified as Christians. Clifton continues, What most Christians overlook is the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16, which declares, Behold, I will send for many hunters, I'm sorry, I will send for many fishers, saith Yahweh, and they shall fish them. And after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For mine eyes are upon all their ways, referring to Israel. They are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. Clifton says, in response to that, nearly all of we Israelites, meaning white Christians, whether or not they understand our Christian identity, understand that when Christ called his disciples, he told them he would make them fishers of men. But what our people have yet to learn is that he was also to call for hunters of men. The hunters had pretty well completed their task. The mainstream churches don't even acknowledge hunters. The denominational churches aren't even aware of these hunters. They're still fishing, or at least they pretend to still be fishing. They're really fishing for the wallets in your pockets. Clifton says, The hunters have pretty well completed their task, so let's take note of the most important discoveries the hunters unearthed. It is evident that denominational Christians do not even understand the prophecy, which was fulfilled when Christ selected actual fishers and told them that he would make them fishers of men. That's when it was half fulfilled. That is because Jeremiah's prophecy refers exclusively to the Israelites taken into captivity. So that is whom the fishers of men, which Christ would send, were supposed to fish. They weren't supposed to fish anybody else. He came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So in order to see from where they are going to be fished, from where they were going to be fished, and in order to understand why the gospel was spread north into Europe by the fishers, we will read the entire passage from verse We'll read more of the passage from verse 15. But Yahweh lives that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. And I will bring them again into their land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith Yahweh, and they shall fish them. And after, not at the same time, after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. Long ago, Clifton had written a paper titled, Who Are the Hunters? Here he borrows his premise and his conclusion from that paper. His assertion, with which I have always wholeheartedly agreed, is that the archaeologists of recent times are the hunters of that prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 16. 
Who else would dig the children of the ancient children of Israel out of the holes of the rocks? Beginning in the north of Palestine, in Mesopotamia and Anatolia, the archaeologists found the records and dug the dispersed children of Israel out of the holes of the rocks so that we can identify them today. Furthermore, it is not a coincidence that the age of the hunters began as the 2,520 years of the captivity of Israel was ending. So Clifton continues, what did these hunters find? While all of these archaeologists found many things verifying biblical places, times, and events, far and away the most important of these were the cuneiform clay tablets found in the excavations of the Assyrian Royal Library at Nineveh. It might appear today, after a lapse of 2,500 years, all hope of tracing the Israelites has been lost in the midst of antiquity. That's what the Jews want you to believe. That's what they want you to believe. And it's not true. It's not at all true. Archaeologists have, though, during the last hundred years, or really about 160, unearthed and published the original contemporary records of the Assyrians who took the Israelites captive. From these records, and here Clifton is following, he doesn't mention it, but he's really following E. Raymond Capt and his missing links in discovered in Assyrian tablets. And that was a very good work by E. Raymond Capt, but I think I really only cite it once and not specifically in all my work at Christagenia because I wanted to be able to prove these things independently on my own. Cap did have some books that I can't seem to find, and they are from Donald Lukenbill. I can't find any of Lukenbill's books available anywhere, and there are several which, from which Cap drew his sources. I wish I could find them, but it's no wonder that they're gone. It really is. But that's okay. We don't need Donald Lukenbill. He would help a great deal, but we don't need him to prove our cause. So, returning to Clifton, from these records, in recent years, vital clues have come to light. These records consist of cuneiform clay tablets, which can be found today in the British Museum. These tablets serve today as archaeological evidence of Israel's migrations. These clay tablets were frontier post reports of Assyrian spies to the Assyrian king, keeping watch over the captive peoples. Among these tablets were over 1,400 different texts, including reports of how the captive peoples, meaning Israelites, were breaking away in small groups and heading northwest in the general direction of Europe. The texts of these Assyrian clay tablets were not deciphered until about 1930. These Assyrian reports were saying, in effect, the last time we saw those sons of Amri, as the Israelites were called by the Assyrians, they were breaking away and heading in a northwesterly direction toward Europe. Now, they didn't all do that. Many Scythians descended from the Israelites remained in and around the Black Sea and in northern Mesopotamia, and especially in the regions above the Araxes River, which was the ancient border of Media, in what we today know as Armenia. And when the cities of the Assyrians were destroyed, 
it was a joint effort between the Babylonians, the Persians, the Medes, and the Scythians, the Chimerians, and this is in inscriptions, who all assisted in the destruction of the Assyrian cities. But the Chimerians, from that time, the main bodies of the Chimerians that were left in the region seem to have headed west and destroyed ancient Phrygia and then crossed the Bosporus and settled in the region of the Black Sea and joined Chimerians who, had, who did depart before them and went around the Black Sea where they established what is called the Crimea. And they settled in Ukraine and in what today we know as Ukraine and Hungary and were found by 100 BC fighting against the Romans in, in what we would call today Northern Italy or Southern Germany. They were fighting against the Romans. That's a digression. I apologize. This program is getting longer and longer as I digress more and more, but that's okay. I have to do it. Among these tablets were over 1,400 different texts, including reports of how the captive peoples were breaking away in small groups and heading northwest in the general direction of Europe. The texts of these Assyrian clay tablets were not deciphered until about 1930, as we discover more and more clay tablets and, and see more and more of them deciphered, we can cement our Christian Israelite or, or European Israelite belief more and more. Not to inquire about this evidence found by the prophesied hunters would therefore be foolhardy, for there is nothing heedlessly implied in Scripture. It should be very carefully noted that the prophet placed the importance of the hunters on the same level with the fishers. Yet we hear next to nothing concerning the importance of the hunters from nominal churchianity, meaning the denominational churches. They don't say anything about the hunters, and they don't tell the truth about the fishers. Now, Clifton has ended his citation from his paper on the hunters of Jeremiah chapter 16, but now... Now he seems to, I'm sorry, now he seems to want to explain just why there is so much propaganda in modern churches concerning Jews and Palestine, which is actually a huge smokescreen that prevents modern churchgoers from ever finding the truth, as they are actually taught by their pastors to worship the Jews instead of Jesus, which is virtually what they do. I've learned that from actual conversations with Baptists and Methodists and other denominational Christians, men who were otherwise intelligent men, but rejected everything I said directly from the words of Christ and cited chapter and verse, and they didn't want to hear it because it didn't agree with what they were taught by their pastors in church. So Clifton says, while the hunters were doing their job, during approximately the same time period, the descendants of Cain were busy concocting a dogma they call Zionism. To get a handle on this, and the Edomite Jews are also descended from Cain, even though Clifton didn't elaborate, to get a handle on this, I will quote from the story of the Jew by Rabbi Lee Levenger, 
and his wife, Alma, copyright 1928, ninth printing 1936. So we see that there were many printings of this book. It must have been popular. Used as a textbook for Jewish children on pages 216 and 217. Clifton cites this work by this devil. Now it became the movement of modern Jewish thinkers in Russia. They called it the Haskalah, or Enlightenment, and called themselves the Masculine, or Enlighteners. Their writings were partly about the Jews and Jewish problems, partly about all other subjects that interested people in the 19th century. Some of them wrote also in Yiddish, the language of the people, which they gradually developed into a literary language. Some of them even wrote in Russian, the language of their oppressors. And in reality, the Russians only oppressed the Jews because the Tsars would not let Jews rob the Christians blind as they have done to America and Europe in more recent times. That predicament ultimately led to the Bolshevik, the Jewish Bolshevik Revolution, which destroyed the entire nobility and many of the white Christians of Russia, the Ukraine, and Eastern Europe. It's a joke to consider the Russians oppressors of the Jews. The Russian czars were the protectors of the people from the Jews, which our governments had failed to do. Clifton continues, the first of them all was Isaac Bear Levinson, who lived from, meaning in eight, these teachers, these masculine in, in 1828, these enlighteners, who lived from 1788 to 1860. The Mendelssohn of Russia, about 40 years after Mendelssohn, he followed that great leader in trying to combine Jewish interest and general education. He and his followers published magazines in the Hebrew language, wrote poetry and novels, as well as histories and serious articles. Abraham Mapu wrote a romantic novel in the days of Isaiah entitled, I guess it was set in the days of Isaiah, entitled Ahabath Zion, The Love of Zion, which introduced hundreds of young Jewish students of the Bible to modern literature. Of course, they had read it in secret as the Haskalah movement was not approved by the old type of Hebrew educators. So Zionism was basically an upstart movement among Jews in, in Eastern Europe. Today, the only history which is taught in our schools is history that is friendly to Jewish interests. That could be the subject of another presentation, if not an entire series of learning to Clifton. He says, and, and he's still citing this source, we have already mentioned the greatest Hebrew poets, Chaim Nakam Bialik. And you will hear in chapter 17 of the Ahad Hayam, the greatest of Hebrew essayists and the founder of cultural Zionism. For Haskalah in Russia led towards Zionism. Smolenskin and Pinsker were forerunners of Theodor Herzl as they worked out a theory of the Jewish nation. If they were the children of Israel, they shouldn't have had to work out such a theory.
This Zionist thinking among Jews rapidly spread, and these are my words, rapidly spread throughout the Jews of Europe and was transmitted into Christianity in the West and especially in America by many avenues which continue to permeate and actually predominate denominational church doctrines and beliefs in many ways. But the same is true throughout the secular institutions of academia in practically every single discipline. For this we see I Stand With Israel bumper stickers and Israeli flags hanging all over America on the homes and vehicles of Christians, while at the same time the policies of every corporation and every area of government have that same allegiance to Jewish interests. When business, government, and church all agree, there's a problem. When business, government, and church all agree, we must know that the same beast has control of them all, as the scripture also explains in many ways. So now Clifton continues by discussing some aspects of the propagation of Zionism in modern times, and he cites yet another of his earlier essays. No doubt, this divergent information may seem extraneous to some readers, but it is essential to our investigation. Not only did the Jews hatch up their theory of Zionism, but they infiltrated and financed this false Zionism into the de denominations of nominal churchianity. Here's the story, as I stated in my essay, Old Jerusalem Shall Never Rise Again. And Clifton, quoting himself, states, As a young con artist in Kansas after the Civil War, Cyrus Schofield met up with John Ingalls, an aging Jewish lawyer who had been sent to Atchison by the Secret Six some 30 years before, to work the abolitionist cause. And it was Jews that were mostly, not all, because Puritans and Quakers were also in on it from New England, social justice warriors of the time, the Antifa of the time, were in on the abolitionist cause, but it was Jews that were behind it to a great extent. Pulling strings, both in Kansas and with his compatriots back east, Ingalls assisted Schofield in gaining admission to the bar and procured his appointment as federal, federal attorney for Kansas. So we see the influence Jews had at that time. Ingalls and Schofield became partners in a railroad scam which led, Cyrus, which led to Cyrus serving time for criminal forgery. And of course, Ingalls probably never went to jail. While he was in prison, Schofield began studying the philosophy of John Darby, pioneer of the Plymouth Brethren movement and the any moment now raptured doctrine, a moment that will never come. Upon his release from prison, Schofield deserted his first wife, some holy man he is, right? He studies Christianity in prison, gets out and deserts his wife. Schofield deserted his first wife, Leontine Carey Schofield, and his two daughters, Abigail and Helen, and he took as his mistress a young girl from the St. Louis Flower Mission. He later abandoned her for Helen Van Ward, whom he eventually married. 
Following his Illuminati connections to New York, he settled in at the Lotus Club, which he listed as his residence for the next 20 years. It was here that he presented his ideas for a new Christian Bible concordance and was taken under the wing of Samuel Untermeyer, the same Judith brought us the German boycott of that the Jewish boycott of Germany that helped roll the ball to start World War II. He was taken under the wing of Samuel Untermeyer, who later became chairman of the American Jewish Committee president of the American League of Jewish Patriots and chairman of the non-sectarian, so that they could pull a bunch of the Goyim into their cause, the non-sectarian anti-Nazi league. Clifton makes a parenthetical note here, which says, Nazi is a Hebrew word for prince. That is true, referring to Strong's Hebrew lexicon entry 5387. And it becomes evident that just as the prophet Balaam tried to curse the children of Israel, but they were actually blessed instead, when the Jews try to curse us, they're actually blessing us in ways that they themselves will never understand. When a Jew calls us supremacist, he is stating the truth of God found at Deuteronomy 14.2. When he calls us racist, it is a badge of honor as he recognizes that we seek to uphold the law of God, which the Jew himself actually despises. So, it's a good thing to be called a Nazi by a Jew. You're being called a prince, as you are a member of a nation of kings and priests. Untermeyer introduced Schofield, returning to Clifton. Reduced Schofield to numerous Zionist and socialist leaders, including Samuel Gompers, Fiorello LaGuardia, Abraham Strauss, Bernard Baruch, and Jacob Schiff. And some of these men were notable politicians or had notable appointments in government. These people, these were the people who financed Schofield's research trips to Oxford and arranged the publication and distribution of his concordance. Thus, the Jesuit priest Ribera's writings influenced the Jesuit priest Lacunza. Lacunza influenced Irving. Irving influenced Darby. Darby influenced Schofield. Schofield and Darby influenced D.L. Moody. And Moody influenced the Pentecostal movement. And the Pentecostal movement influenced the Charismatic movement. Schofield also was the head of the Southwestern School of the Bible in Dallas, the forerunner of the present Dallas Theological Seminary. This school is now a major center for spreading Schofield's views, and I don't want to have the slightest part in this satanic plot dreamed up, supported, and perpetuated by Canaanite, Edomite Jews. And as a digression, I would say that the Bullinger Bible was also very influential and that, too, was created under heavy Jewish influence, as Bullinger was a personal friend of Theodore Herzl, and 
he had received all of his information about numbers in scripture and and a lot of the other more mystical things that he speaks of, it all came right from the Talmud. It all came right from the Zohar and the Kabbalah. So Bullinger is just as bad as Schofield, and I'm sure there are others. But Clifton is certain, as we all should be, that the modern Jews are the descendants of the Edomites who were in control of Jerusalem at the time of Christ. That may be ascertained in the words of Christ himself, who told them, John chapter 10, verse 26, that they did not believe him because they were not his sheep. So they must have been Israelites, I'm sorry, they must have been Edomites, whereas he said that his sheep, who must have been Israelites, hear his voice. If Christ told his Jewish adversaries that they did not believe him because they were not his sheep, he is not telling them they're not his sheep because they do not believe him. That's the way the church teaches it, but that's backwards. It's the exact opposite of what he said. He said they did not believe him because they were not his sheep. They couldn't have been Israel. They must have been Edomites. It's the only possible explanation, period. He said his sheep hear his voice. He said that he came specifically for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. No matter how lost these bastards were, they couldn't have been of the house of Israel because they were not his sheep. According to the teachings of the apostles of Christ, Judeans who accepted Christianity would have lost their identity as Judeans. Being Christians, they never would have been called Jews again and would never have been called Jews subsequent to the time when they accepted Christ. So in the end, the only Jews left were those who were not his sheep, those who rejected him. This is a very simple concept, which is fully apparent throughout the words of Christ himself in the New Testament. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out, or a Greek expert, or a Bible expert. Just read what Christ said to his enemies. Paul of Tarsus explained it in different ways throughout his epistles, but especially in Romans chapter 9, chapters 9 and 10. So we do not think this way because we are racists. Rather, we think this way because we are Christians who actually believe Jesus instead of Jews. Again, we are not white supremacists, but we are God supremacists. Returning to Clifton. We can see very clearly here that the Converso Edomite Jews knew quite well that if they could convince nominal churchianity that they were God's chosen people, then they could gain Christian support for their satanic agenda. That's exactly what they've done. While the denominational churches and churches in general from the second century forward had ceded to the Jews their false claims of being Israelites. They were never recognized as all of Israel, and they were never any longer considered to be a chosen people as it was understood that Christians were a new Israel. Regardless of the fact that they were not being true to Scripture in that belief, they were nevertheless closer to the truth than the Jews themselves, who had forever rejected Christ. So from its inception, the Catholic Church and all other Christian church 
had rejected any claims by the Jews to be the chosen people, understanding that the label belonged to Christians. That situation endured until the rise of Zionism and the Zionist influence on the churches, as Clifton has explained in part, and now concludes by returning to the original purpose of his essay. And he says, considering all of this evidence, we are now in a better position to answer the question, when will all of Israel be awakened to their identity? Yes, the Bible does answer our question, but it is found in a most unlikely place. Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 22 to 25. So the house of Israel shall know that I am Yahweh their God from that day and forward. And the heathen, now I'm going to take issue with that translation. And the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. That word is nations. It is a Hebrew word, goyim, which means nations. It can be translated heathen in some contexts, but not when those contexts force a passage to conflict with other similar, other scriptures which are prophesying or teaching on the same subject. You can't force conflicts in translations and interpretations. If you're forcing conflicts, then you're misinterpreting something, and that's going to be a major subject of the last part of this program. So I will address this as we finish and, and finish with Clifton. And the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they transgressed, they trespassed against me. Therefore hid I my face from them, and gave them into the hand of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword. According to their uncleanness, and according to their transgressions, have I done unto them, and I hid my face from them. Therefore thus saith Yahweh God, now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. Ezekiel chapter 39 refers to the prophetic time when all nations shall make war with the children of Israel in the places where they would ultimately settle, where all those nations shall ultimately be destroyed by God. And the remnant of Israel shall survive. We have many reasons to believe that we are in the midst of that war today. But here in Ezekiel, we see that the full truth is not generally known to them until the war is over. And the truth is then revealed to the survivors. Clifton responds to this prophecy with some citations with which we do not fully agree, but which are generally acceptable. And he begins with Matthew Poole and his three-volume Bible commentary. And Matthew Poole says this on, on this passage, the sottish or stupefied heathen thought meanly of the God of Israel and reckoned they came into captivity because the people of some greater God had by the power of their God prevailed against Israel's God and his people. But by his overthrow given to Gog, because Ezekiel chapter 39 
is an end times prophecy of the mountains of Israel being overrun by all the other nations. But by this overthrow given to Gog, they shall see it was not impotence in Israel's God, but iniquity in Israel's people that brought them into captivity. Trespass, trespass where it says that they trespassed against him, committed sin perversely, continually, and with a high hand. Hid my face, where it says that Yahweh hid their face from, hid hid his face from, from them, drew my, withdrew my favor, would no more regard them, and then it was soon a night of trouble to them. Into the hand, into the hand of their enemies, into the power of their enemies, which could not have hurt Israel if Israel had not first forsaken his God. But then God forsook them. When God withdrew his defense as fenceless, they fell under the sword of the enemy, for it is he that subdues enemies and gives victory. And Clifton doesn't really comment on that, but now he offers another citation. Adam Clark, in his six-volume six commentary, remarks reasonably well on verse 25. Now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob. Both they and the heathen, or nations, shall know that it was for their, Israel's, iniquity that I gave them into the hands of their enemies. And now I will redeem them from those hands in such a way so as to prove that I am a merciful God as well as a just God. And now Clifton responds to this, and he says, From this it should be evident that we are dealing with two different entities, all of the twelve tribes of Israel, and a people who are enemies of Israel. We are presently mindful of such illegal heathen pouring across our borders and entering our Israelite lands on a daily basis. Now, some background real quick on Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel chapter 39 is an account or a prophecy of something that's going to happen in the future. When Gog and Magog assembles many nations and they come up on the mountains of Israel. But Ezekiel's written when Israel is already deported, already taken into captivity. So he can't be speaking of the Israel that was taken into captivity because this is clearly a prophecy of the future. And the same prophecy is found in Ezekiel chapter 38 and then in Ezekiel chapter 39. And it's not, Ezekiel 39 is not something that's going to happen after Ezekiel chapter 38. What it is, is it's two different descriptions of the same events using slightly different language. And that's an example of a Hebrew parallelism where the same thing is described twice in a row so that from each perspective you could learn more about what it is really speaking. So, Ezekiel chapter 39, these nations come upon the mountains of Israel. It's speaking of some time far into the future because he's Israel had just been brought into Assyrian captivity, and, and the mountains of the old kingdom were desolate. It couldn't refer to them. So it must be speaking of something far in the future, and it's speaking of the day of the wrath of Yahweh. In that day, when he brings all of the enemies of his enemies and the enemies of Israel against his people, but he destroys those enemies so that his people know what happened and they know how he had saved them. That's a 
a theme here, and it's a theme in other prophecies, as we shall see in brief. So Clifton says, now, yet, now for yet another citation from Barnes's notes on Ezekiel 39, 25, 25 and 26. It reads thusly, the contrast of the future of Israel with that of the surrounding nations. This prophecy reaches far beyond a mere temporal restoration. It points to times of more permanent security when from all nations and kingdoms, the church of Christ, the Israel of God shall be gathered in. And Barnes is a universalist and he's He's sort of off base there. When the power of the world shall be forever broken and the kingdoms of Christ shall be established forever. And Clifton had no comment, but now he offers one final citation from Matthew Henry's six-volume commentary on verses 23 through 25 of Ezekiel 39. God will let the heathen know the meaning of his people's troubles and rectify the mistake of those concerning them who took occasion from the troubles of Israel to reproach the God of Israel as unable to protect them and untrue to his covenant with them. When God, upon their reformation and return to him, turned again their captivity and brought them back to their own land, and upon their perseverance in their reformation, wrought such great salvations for them, as that from the attempts of Gog upon them, then it would be made to appear even to the heathen, that would but consider and compare things, that there was no ground at all for their reflection, that Israel went into captivity not because God could not protect them, but because they had, by sin, forfeited his favor and thrown themselves out of his protection. The heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. That iniquity which they learned from the heat in their neighbors because they trespassed against God. That was the true reason why God hid his face from them and gave them into the hands of their enemies. And now Clifton himself concludes, and this is the last paragraph we will hear from Clifton this evening, although I still have quite a few minutes remaining. At Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 26 to 28, we are told, I said I would scatter them into corners. I would make the remembrance of them to cease from among men, those so-called lost tribes, which we actually are. Were it not that I feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should behave themselves strangely, and lest they should say, Our hand is high, and Yahweh has not done all of this. Have you noticed, Clifton says, have you noticed how strangely our enemies have been acting lately? Because the immigration thing was gearing up and getting hotter and hotter, and it, it seemed that the Negro and Clifton perceived that in 2012, but probably a lot earlier, that the Negro was being raised above us and getting more and more confident that, that they had a, a position of power over us. Have you noticed how strangely our enemies have been acting lately? Like, for instance, the non-entity in the empty chair, B.O. Clifton wouldn't even name him. And, of course, he was referring to the Negro who recently occupied the office of the American president. So, by that, we see that Clifton wrote this paper before the end of 2016, but according to his records, his first proofread draft was completed in August of 2012. 
However, I cannot agree with the universalist, and, and I will explain that, the universalist interpretations of Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 22 through 24, which was made by all of these commentators and even accepted by Clifton. So I will read them again. So the house of Israel shall know that I am Yahweh their God from that day forward. And the heathen, or nations, shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they trespassed against me. Therefore hid I my face from them, and gave them into the hands of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword. According to their uncleanness, and according to their transgressions, have I done unto them, and hid my face from them. Here I must read the word heathen as nation. Nations in verse 23, which is the literal meaning of the Hebrew word from which it was translated, and also assert that it is employed as a parallelism synonymous to the phrase house of Israel in verse 22 and later in 23. The nations of dispersed Israel will learn that the ancient house of Israel went off into captivity and why that happened. The heathen cannot know this at this time as they were brought to conduct war against the children of Israel and they shall all be destroyed. So how could they learn anything? Furthermore, I must assert that Ezekiel 39 verses 22 to 24 be interpreted in a way that is consistent with a related prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 30, where the word of Yahweh says, Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh. Neither be dismayed, O Israel. For lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed, meaning thy literal children, from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpublished, unpunished, I'm sorry. This same prophecy is repeated with nearly identical language in Jeremiah chapter 46. Then another similar prophecy is found in Revelation chapter 20 in greater detail. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, the same Gog and Magog from Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. So this is absolutely a third prophetic account of what we would expect to happen. Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about the invasion of the mountains of Israel, described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. That is when our eyes will be open to our identity.
by that time, no white Christian will be able to call us racists or Nazis or slander us or call us white supremacists. We'll all be white supremacists because that is the supremacy of God. That is what he wants. While we would have to have a long digression to explain the reasons for our interpretation, we have already done that in our commentary on Revelation chapter 20 and cannot possibly repeat it all here. The thousand years describes the time that Christianity prevailed in Europe throughout the Middle Ages, and Satan coming out of the pit represents the emancipation of the Jews in Europe, beginning with the time of Napoleon and his empire. The Jews are Satan. The word Satan means adversary, and it was the Jews who were the adversaries of Christ who also descended from the Canaanites and Edomites, who in turn were the adversaries of ancient Israel. Christ had warned the Christian churches of imposter Judeans who were actually the synagogue of Satan in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The camp of the saints are the nations of white Christendom. The word by which Europeans were collectively identified for many centuries, Christendom. These are the saints of the New Testament, and certainly not the Jews. Today, Satan has gathered all nations against Christendom, and a precursory study of modern history reveals that the Jews have been behind globalism and mass immigration of non-whites into white nations ever since those efforts began over this past century. So history proves our interpretation of this passage in Revelation chapter 20, which corresponds with Ezekiel chapter 39 in every way. So where God in Jeremiah states that I will make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet I will not make a full end of thee. And where God, Yahweh God in Ezekiel chapter 39, earlier in verse 12 says, and the seven months... And seven months shall the house of Israel be burying them, that they may cleanse the land. And Christ, who is Yahweh God incarnate, says in Revelation chapter 20, that fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them, speaking of all those other races and nations which would oppose the children of Israel in the last days. Where we repeat these things, we are not white supremacists, but rather we are God supremacists. We are not white supremacists, but rather we are God supremacists. We believe that having these truths, we also have a responsibility to warn our brethren of what is happening now. Because that battle in Ezekiel, that surrounding of the camp of the saints in Revelation is happening now. We have a responsibility to warn our brethren of what is happening now and what are the things to come. And that is only a recognition of the supremacy of God. When it happens, the Jews will no longer be able to slander us, as it will be difficult for them to publish their slander after the Holocaust, which is to come. The fire come down from God out of heaven. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.